Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us for today's show. The uh, special session of the Georgia General Assembly is continuing uh, in the uh, state capitol. There's some question as to whether they're going to finish up before Thanksgiving week. It's possible, according to some members of the legislature, they could get out of there on Friday. Uh, But maybe they'll have to go into early next week. And a couple of our panelists today uh, have some thoughts about how the process is moving forward. They've already um, finalized the lines, the new districts for state House and state Senate, and the business this week has been about redrawing congressional lines. So we're going to start our conversation today with that, and let me introduce the panel that's going to do that. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and author of Flipped, His new book, out in March on the Georgia 2020 election, is uh, with us. Greg, how are you? I'm great. It's out in March, but the book is done, so I'm I'm really great. (laughs) Yeah, I I imagine that's terrific. Uh, Of course, it's available for pre-order on Amazon uh, right now. Uh, So I'm excited. I, I actually, your editor sent me. A, uh, a an advanced look at the book, and I haven't had a chance to start reading it yet, but I'm very excited about digging into it in the days ahead, maybe over the Thanksgiving break. Yeah, it's great Thanksgiving reading, Bill, and you're in it, so stay tuned. <laughs> Your colleague from the AJC is with us today. She covers the Georgia legislature, primarily the state Senate, Maya Prabhu. Thank you, Maya, for being here. We're glad to have you, and I know you're especially busy at the special session. You're calling, in fact, from your office down at the Capitol, but I appreciate you're giving us some time to talk. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. I am buckling in for what I'm sure is going to be a crazy next few days, week. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, oh, oh. I think there are a lot of people down there who hope you're wrong when you use the word weeks with an <laughs> S on the end. We'll see how that turns out. Um, and we're also joined by another uh, veteran journalist, Chuck Williams, reporter for WRBL-TV in Columbus, longtime print journalist, now doing TV. You know, Chuck, I talked to the, I don't know if he's the, pre- I frankly don't know, president, general manager of the company you work for um, at an award ceremony that I went to a few weeks ago. And um, he told me how thrilled they were that you made the transition from print to TV. Um, you probably, even though you probably he talked, said, you probably talked to David Harder, general manager, and uh, I, it's been a great transition. I just want to give you a belated thanks on going into the Georgia Broadcasting Hall of Fame. As somebody who oh, has thanks. made the switch, I now realize how hard that is. And belated congratulations, Bill, to you. <laughs> well, thank. I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Chuck. Um, Kurt Young is back with us today. He's the chairman of the Department of Political Science at Clark Atlanta University, teaches political science at the school. And Kurt, you're getting set to head toward the end of a semester, so it's a busy time for you, right? It 
It is a busy time, but never too busy to talk about all of these exciting developments in the state of Georgia and the Atlanta area, and of course nationally. But I also want to say congratulations to uh, um, um, uh, to my friend for his um, Greg for his new publication. That's wonderful news. Thank you. Well, you haven't read the you haven't read the book yet. I haven't read it yet. Right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm sure it's great. All right, let's I'll get it while I can. Let's right. Get... <laughs> so, Blue Steve, let's go right into this. Um, we're expecting uh, the congressional map uh, this week. Your understanding, I think, and, and I know these things are fluid, but your understanding is that the House and the Senate have basically already um, informally agreed on one map. There won't be separate maps from the House and the Senate. They're going to look at a shared map. Is that right? Yeah, and they've been in negotiations for, I know, hardcore in the last couple of days, but probably for the last, you know, realistically for the last weeks um, to, to develop a, a, a sort of a joint agreement. And when we're talking about House and Senate negotiators, what we really mean is Republican House and Senate negotiators. Democrats yeah. have been shut out of this process. Um, but what it's looking like, and we, this is not a shock to anyone who's been listening to the show or following along, um, this is it's going to make Lucy McBath's North Fulton to DeKalb to East Cobb district very much more conservative. We'll stretch it further into the exurbs and maybe even rural North Georgia to make it a solidly Republican seat. And in, and in, in the interim, make uh, the seventh district where Carolyn Bordeaux uh, holds her her what was what is now a swing district, uh, make that much bluer and make it smaller and more compact uh, Democratic leaning. Um, so Democrats would lose one seat um, uh, along those party lines in, the, in, in their congressional representation if this if this passes. So, Maya, um, clearly uh, the effort to to take a seat away in the sixth district from a Democrat and more important, to take a Democratic seat out of the delegation is very distressing to the Democrats that you're following in the state Senate. Yeah, definitely. I know they've been uh, proud of the work that they've done in the past few years to flip the seat in the sixth and the seat in the seventh. And so I, I would be surprised to hear that they were surprised by efforts to claw back at least one seat, if not more. Um, so, you know, I'm sure they're not happy about it and, and will raise a big stink in the, in the weeks ahead. Well, we'll watch how that unfolds. In the meantime, Chuck, you're right in the middle of an interesting congressional uh, uh, situation down there in Columbus uh, because here you have Sanford Bishop, incumbent for three decades, a Democrat in the second district, and Drew Ferguson, an incumbent in the third. They're both basically in your sphere of, uh, of interest in, in Columbus. Talk to us about what's going on as you watch this unfold in terms of the lines each of them are likely to get. It's going to be interesting to see. The last time the district lines were redrawn, Congressman Bishop's second district got more Democratic leaning. It looks like that's going to change a little bit right now because the, the only map we've seen, Columbus is the baby they cut in half. North Columbus, predominantly Republican, got, has been in the third district with Congressman Bishop. South Columbus, prominently, predominantly Democratic, has been in with West Macon and Albany in the second district. What we're seeing is that all of Muskogee may be in one district now, which would likely be the second and be Bishop's district. So it's going to be interesting to see what they, what 
they do with that. And even the first map had part of Southern Harris County, which is Southern Harris is essentially a suburb of Columbus. Southern Harris in the second as well. So, you know, if it gets, if the second gets more, Repu- more, less democratic, and let's don't say more Republican, let's say less democratic, then it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Does Bishop, who I would use, you say three decades, Bill, I would call him entrenched. Does yeah. Sanford all of a sudden, and I apologize for calling by his first name, but we're in Columbus, we can do that. Does, does Sanford become more vulnerable to a challenge from a moderate Republican. Does that district now come in play? So, um, Kurt, let's follow up on that. Um, In the aftermath of Virginia, the gubernatorial election that uh, uh, Glenn Youngkin, a a Republican, won, the NRCC, the National Republican Congressional Campaign, the Campaign Committee, uh, said that it was going to target Sanford Bishop down there in the second. They felt that uh, the results in Virginia gave them hope that they can get somewhere with uh, Sanford's district, despite the fact, as, as Chuck says, entrenched is the word to use for him. He's held on to a district that has, um, he's really endeared himself to for literally uh, decades uh, because he takes care of the agriculture interests. He also has an ability to work with the urban sections of the district. Um, so the question is, is he really going to be challenged down there in the second? Did, did, did Democrats national or Republicans nationally and Republicans here in Georgia doing the maps really, really think they can go after Sanford Bishop? Well, I mean, it's, it, it's clearly, clearly a strategy that's going to be uh, an indicator of things to come in, in national politics and certainly politics at the local level. Um, uh, based upon what we saw unfold in Virginia, right? Um, but I think the answer to the question depends on the number of factors. Of course, of course, we saw this coming. We 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 could anticipate that this kind of strategy would unfold, um, given what we saw to be the directions um, um, with the census and the impact that it would have on on um, on redistricting and 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 what have you. But here's what I think may be a key. The Really, the only elixir that the Democratic Party has at local level is the um, emphasis on turnout. Right, that's going to be the counterbalance to what we're seeing in terms of these institutional uh, 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 strategies and, and and processes that are associated with with redistricting. Right, and and, and the gerrymandering kind of uh, uh, outplay that that always results. Right, um, the only weapon at the Democrats' hands right now in the Democrats' hands right now is to really try to overwhelm the process through turnout. Now, if if I'm correct. Uh, then I think that this may be the only, I won't say the only, but this may be one of the key weapons that the, uh, that, the that Bishop would have to maintain what he's been able to accomplish over the last few decades uh, in, in, his, um, in his district. Yeah, Bill, um, you know, the, the, the Sanford Bishop district is going to be really interesting. Um, Democrats will feel com- more confident, of course, with, with an incumbent NSE than they will um, when he decides to retire, maybe down the line. Um, but what's really going to be, to me, one of the more fascinating decisions is what Lucy McBath does, because we know the earlier version of the map and this version of the map is going to put her in really difficult straits. Um, the district could be over, you know, could be solidly Republican the way we're hearing it's going to be drawn. Um, so what does she do? 
Does she try to uh, win a win a contest that she has very little chance of winning, or does she run for another office, um, or does she try to challenge Carolyn Bordeaux next door? We know there's distinct differences between those two congresswomen. They're allies. They 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 get along well personally from what we hear, but. Carolyn Bordeaux has marketed herself as a centrist. Um, she raised objections to spending plans and progressive policies that, that Lucy McBath has embraced. Um, and this district would be a lot bluer, which, of course, helps in the general election, the 7th District, but is much more difficult for someone who's a centrist to win in a primary. So that's what I'm looking for is Carolyn, Carolyn Bordeaux, Lucy McBath dynamic. If Lucy McBath decides to primary Carolyn Bordeaux as a result of these maps. So, um, Maya, you're welcome to weigh in on that, but I'd also love to get your feeling. I said at the very beginning of the show, there are people who think the session's going to end on Friday, um, and you believe it's going to continue on. And one of the reasons I wonder about how much longer it goes on is that while certainly right now the maps are the A, number one uh, task of the legislators, the longer a special session drags on, the more mischief-making there can be with other possible measures being introduced. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see. I think I, as many of us on this call, are probably cynics. And so uh, I think folks came into the session believing that they would be out this coming Friday. I think there are still people in the legislature who think they will be out this coming Friday mathematically. I don't know how that can be done, um, being that they haven't even begun to meet on these congressional maps yet, which are supposed to start today. Um, I, I've been told to prepare to be here this weekend, not to make plans this weekend. Um, and some people have said that they think we will go as late as Tuesday. But at the end of the day, I'll be here regardless. So (laughs) uh, we'll see what happens. Well, what the heck? There's a shortage of turkeys, so Thanksgiving isn't going to be quite what it always (laughs) is anyway. Chuck, let me turn to the – let me widen the the lens on redistricting in states across the country for a moment and uh, start with you on this. Reed Epstein and uh, Nick uh, Corisanti – uh, filed a really fascinating piece in the New York Times on uh, yesterday. And it the, the headline of the piece is, Republicans gain heavy house edge in 2022 as gerrymandered maps appear. And let me just read the first couple of graphs. A year before the polls open in the 2022 midterm elections, Republicans are already poised to flip at least five seats in the closely divided House thanks to redrawn district maps that are more distorted, more disjointed, and more gerrymandered than any since the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. The flood of ger- the, the rapidly forming congressional map, a quarter of which has taken shape as districts are redrawn this year, represents an even more extreme warping of American political architecture with state legislators in many places moving aggressively to cement their partisan dominance. So, Chuck, what we already know that 2022 is going to be an incredibly competitive year, especially for the U.S. House in terms of Republicans getting control again. But what uh, Reed and Nick are saying is redistricting alone could give Republicans five seats before I even worry about the reelection campaigns. You know, 
That's right. And you look back, I'm going to read you a quote from Carolyn Hughley. Carolyn is a state representative from Columbus, and this is her take on redistricting. Carolyn will be our senior representative when uh, Representative Smiley uh, moves into an ambassadorship early next year, likely. The people of Georgia deserve more than a magic show of smoke and mirrors. Republicans have ignored the will of Georgia voters in drawing their Senate House map proposal. It minimizes the political power of the people of Georgia and ignores the fact that Georgia is equally divided politically. That's where we are, Bill. I mean, the Democrats are going to scream, as Representative Hughley is doing there, because they think this thing is being drawn in a way to hurt them, and it's being drawn by the people who have the power right now. Does that make sense, Kurt, Bill? Uh, wh- yeah, yeah. Kurt, I mean, it, it, the, he this notion that redistricting, that gerrymandering, essentially uh, takes away the power of voters uh, to determine their own, the legislators who they want to put in office, who share their uh, basic views of life, their views on issues, um, is it's an issue we face every 10 years during redistricting, but the Times believes, Epstein and Corsati believe, it's more extreme than ever this year. Right, because it's, it's occurring within a certain kind of global, uh, not global, a certain kind of national context, right? Uh, it's not happening in a vacuum. Uh, and, and build a historical context. We are seeing in many ways the shadow of, of, of uh, uh, Shelby uh, versus Holder um, 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 resonating here, right? The 2014 decision um, um, that that radically changed in many ways the Voting Rights Act uh, um, 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 in the way it was uh, implemented throughout uh, elections, um, you know, n- nationwide. <coughs> and so, what, indeed, what's happening uh, in these kind of uh, situations uh, is occurring against the backdrop also of, of changes in the voting structure, right? The, the implementation of barriers across the country to limit uh, uh, votes. Um, or some would argue, of course, there's a debate there in some cases. Uh, changes building the federal federal judiciary as sort of a, 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 a an oasis that one could go to to if they believe that their voting rights have been infringed upon in certain kind of ways, right? Uh, so it's not just the changes in the in the in the uh, local uh, in the state, rather the state uh, legislative legislative houses. And certainly in the congressional um, um, delegations, it's a part of a national trend that's taking place here. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what types of, uh, of solutions that the Democratic Party uh, um, will be able to put forward uh, in to counter, uh, or let's, let's say to add to whatever types of complaints or, 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 or screams that they are issuing with regard, of how, with, with regard to how they be, may be um, mistreated in the process. Greg? Yeah, yeah I mean, look, th- this is another reminder that elections matter. I know we don't need that reminder that often in Georgia, right. but this is when in 2018, when Stacey Abrams and, and Democrats were, were pushing, one of the narratives was that they would control the map-making process, and it seems so esoteric to so many people, but but the, the way these maps are drawn, I know Charles Bullock always says it, it's the most political process um, that we can possibly have, and it is. And, and it's not just these congressional maps, but the legislative rap maps were also drawn to preserve Republican par- power well into the next decade. So even if there is a Democrat who, even if Stacey Abrams or another Democrat wins in 2022, um, there will be a Republican check, odds are, against Democratic power um, if that's the, if <coughs> well into well into to the 2020s. Um, so, and you're seeing, look, and you're seeing in Illinois and in Maryland and in Democratic-controlled states, 
Democrats looking for that edge, too, and adding Democratic congressional seats. But the fact is, Republicans control more legislatures than Democrats do. So Republicans have that inherent advantage right now um, going into the congressional process. Okay. Um, uh, Maya, before we leave redistricting and move on, I want to do a check with you on one final thing. Um, While we talk about the uh, inherent uh, partisanship of gerrymandering, uh, I think it's fair to say, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that in the House, when the House drew its state legislative districts, the state House districts, they were a bit more generous in giving Democrats the opportunity that they basically deserve given the change in voting patterns in the state uh, than what happened in the Senate. Uh, I think the state House map uh, gives Democrats a chance to pick up something like five, maybe six seats, whereas in the Senate, it's really only a one, set, a one seat change. So at least you've got to say that in, in the House side, they're getting the fact the state is changing, even though Democrats would argue it's changing a lot more than what you're giving us, right? Yeah, I, I definitely have. I've always credited um, Speaker Ralston for being a pragmatist and seeing the writing on the wall and doing his best to keep his majority as best he can. I'm sure more conservative members of both caucuses wanted them to go further and, and take more like take in the House, take Democratic seats away. In the Senate, we might have seen that with one seat. Um, but in the Senate, you know, they wanted to take even more seats. Um, so it's it speaks to, like you said, the writing on the wall. The state is changing. And um, in the House, they seem to be more willing to shore up their the seats that they have and the ones that they know they can hold on to for the next decade. Um, and we'll see how that works for them in the Senate. Yeah, Kurt? quickly, Bill. I want to I want to add to that just very quickly. Uh, you, you're you're right. There is a kind of skillful uh, splitting of the baby. I hate to use that metaphor, but there's a skillful way of trying to uh, uh, recognize the, the 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 shifts in the Democratic uh, constituency and numbers in the state. But remember, Bill, there was an important discussion around the uh, uh, inherent undercount in the uh, census that may suggest that the lean towards the uh, bluing of the state i don't, I don't i'm not going to i'm not prepared to argue that the state is a blue state yet but the bluing of the state may be a bit further along than uh, the, what the numbers are indicating and so therefore it may be a, an expression that uh, really reflects that that reality in the state well yeah, uh, f- that sounds right but that but there's nothing a legislator can do nothing that a legislature can do with an undercount in terms of determining maps, right? I mean, that's a that's a more fundamental issue that that needed to be addressed by the Census Bureau itself. Um, let's move on, and well, you know what? You know what? It's really time for a break. Let's get the break out of the way. A lot more to talk about with this panel after these messages. Kurt Young, Chuck Williams, Maya Prabhu, Greg Bluestein on today's Political Rewind. I'm sorry, I do want to take up one very quickly more issue about redistricting. Maya, um, one of the things that's happening on the Senate side in the Senate map is there's been a lot of attention drawn to the fact that um, the map was drawn to uh, uh, put in danger 
uh, Senator Michelle Au's uh, seat. She's the uh, uh, first Asian American woman in the state Senate, and uh, now her seat is is in great jeopardy. It's 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 basically a Republican uh, district now, and and our our friend and panelist on this show, Karen Owen, professor of political science out at the University of West Georgia, wrote an interesting article about women and redistricting, in which she pointed out that it is women who suffer most when it comes to redrawing maps, incumbents. She says, according to the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers in 2021, women comprise 31% of state legislators nationally, and of that percentage, 66% are Democrats, 33% are Republican. Uh, But the fact of the matter is they are the ones who are targeted first and foremost when it comes to taking away their seats. And Michelle Au, I think there are people in the Senate who feel that's exactly what Michelle Au is dealing with. Yeah, and and I guess you have to question whether it's something that is um, that they're doing consciously or subconsciously. You know, if they are as they're looking at the maps, if they are saying, "I want to." have fewer women in this chamber, or if it's just something that inherently through societal patriarchy is something that's even unknown to them as they're going for it. But like was said during the debate, um, there are very few women, like you said, in in each chamber, um, and even fewer in the Republican caucuses than in the Democratic caucuses. And so I know that Senator Al definitely feels very targeted. I know that there are some in Republican leadership who seem to think that she can still win in that um, in that seat. I think she is maybe a little bit more skeptical. From what I hear, she doesn't plan to back down. So we may see how that how that turns out. But I know when I talk to Republican law, Republican leadership in the Senate right after the maps were released. I said, what do you guys have against Senator Al? Oh, nothing, nothing. She can win that district. I said, she'll be fine. She'll be fine. I'm like, so we'll see. Well, you know, Greg, very quickly on this point, uh, you know, the notion that a group of, uh, of legislators would intentionally try to uh, reduce the number of women seems unlikely. But it, it might not be unlikely to think that the men who dominate uh, legislative bodies like George's uh, may take the women in the body, some of them, the older timers, a little less seriously and don't think of them in the of protecting them maybe in the same way they do men. I'd also say that, that they look for the other party superstars and, and, and rising stars who they could kind of try to uh, knock off or make a, make their lives more complicated. And I, I'd put Senator Awe in that category. I mean, she's already quickly yeah. made not just a – uh, a, a citywide name for herself, but really a statewide and regional name for herself um, as, a, as a position, as someone who has has been one of the loudest voices on the on the state's coronavirus pandemic approach on issues that are near and dear to healthcare priorities. Um, and so, you know, th- that might just be they might say gender has nothing to do with it, or her status has nothing to do with it. But the reality is that Republicans in there and Democrats in there know that she is a formidable candidate one day for statewide office potentially and they want to try to make her life difficult this this next cycle 
Uh, that's a good point. Okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, there's a story I've been wanting to get to for uh, quite a while, Maya, and that was the uh, what many are calling the sneak attack by uh, Senator Clint Dixon, who is governor's floor, a, a floor leader in the state Senate, which gives him a little bit more uh, uh, clout uh, than others. He, he quietly, without talking to anybody, introduced this measure uh, which he has now withdrawn, at least for the special session, that would add the number of add a number of members to the Gwinnett County Commission. That's a starting point, and would uh, uh, make it so that the chair of the commission could not vote on matters uh, that came before them. Um, of course, many people feel this is a Republican response to the fact that Gwinnett County now is a Democratic commission and uh, an African-American commission and uh, that Dixon is looking for a way. It's, it's his version of FDR's court packing. You know, let's, let's add some people who might be Republicans. And he also wants school board elections to be nonpartisan. Now, he's withdrawn it for now because the, the heat was pretty overwhelming. But it's not going away. He says it'll be back in January. Give, tell us about that. Yeah, um, Tyler Wilkins at the paper has done a great job covering this and covering Gwinnett County. Um, it, it is definitely interesting to watch the dynamics, especially especially being the person who sits in the um, in the Senate chamber every day, um, seeing the dynamics between the folks in the Gwinnett County delegation. We had lots of passionate. Um, press conferences and floor speeches from Democratic senators who were obviously crying foul at the way that um, Senator Dixon was going about dropping this legislation on them without consulting any of them. I believe he's the only Republican in the Senate Gwinnett um, delegation. Um, And, you know, uh, Senator Sheikh Rahman, probably the most passionate I've ever seen him as the uh, chair of the Gwinnett Senate delegation, um, just kind of going up to the well and, and, and blasting him, raising his voice, just very, very upset. And, you know, it, it speaks to, like you said, Gwinnett County is changing. It's a, it's become pretty solidly democratic. And while Republicans don't have control in the county, they do have control in the state house, And that can be a way for them to kind of go around the people of the county and claw some power back for themselves. Uh, we should say this isn't just Clint Dixon in the Senate. Uh, Chuck F. Stration, a uh, frequent panelist on the show over in the House, thinks it's a good idea, too. He's a Gwinnett County State uh, rep. And they, their, their uh, contention behind this, they claim, is that Gwinnett's growing so rapidly that the commission districts need to be expanded. We need to have more people representing them, Chuck. And, you know, I see that, you know, I've been watching Gwinnett a little bit, but we don't have the dog in that fight down here. We've had our own fights down on this side of this side of the state. Um, but it's clear that the Republican control of the Senate will allow them to do some things to local jurisdictions that may be against the will of the majority of the people in those jurisdictions. And that's the thing that everybody in the state should be watching, whether it's Buckhead, whether it's Gwinnett, whatever. All of us outside of the metro area should be paying attention to this stuff. 
Well, that's why I said it. I mean, you at any time you see, uh, in, even in a local uh, piece of legislation, uh, a trend line that could be applied more broadly in other parts of the state, I think it's worth pointing out, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, Bill. Kurt Young, another little tidbit, and we uh, because it's not going to be introduced until the regular session in January, uh, we won't spend too much time on it today, but it, it is also part of a trend uh, in terms of how Republicans are getting their messaging out there for the 2022 election. Uh, Jan Jones, uh, Republican in the State House, another leader in the General Assembly, has made it clear that she is going to introduce legislation that will um, essentially uh, monitor and remove from schools what she says are obscene uh, books. Some of this is based on the Yonkin victory in Virginia, where they decided to make uh, the Toni Morrison book, Beloved, a target and a talking point. Um, but, you know, it goes along with this notion also that Republicans are seizing on the idea that schools are out of control, that parents don't have enough rights to step in and determine what their children are learning. Um, so speak to that. You know, it's often referred to, and I think we've talked about it on, on your show in the past, Bill, you know, this notion of culture wars, right? And the extent to which culture wars seem to be sort of like a tool or an instrument that could be used in any kind of political struggle. But we, we understand culture differently. You know, culture is much more profound than that. And, and in many cases, uh, uh, all politics are reflections of culture, right? Uh, there's a relationship between culture and politics that drive what we're seeing here, right? At a very basic level, uh, uh, culture is more than simply um, artistic expression. You know, music is it's really a reflection of the very basic values that govern a society or a group within a society. And those values seek political arenas to empower themselves or to find means by which they become associated with political systems and seats of power, right? And so what we're seeing in Virginia and uh, what we're seeing here in Georgia, you know, is a reflection of these very deep-seated efforts to uh, exercise power using cultural instruments, right? And it's not new. We can see this coming, right? We saw 19—I was thinking, Bill, about the 1925 Scopes case, right? Um, where you see this kind of effort to uh, mobilize, right, right, remember the effort to mobilize political forces to address something as fundamental as, as uh, evolution and the extent to which evolution becomes a part of a political process, right? And, and then, the, 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 you know, this whole notion of book banning becomes a part of that, right? Um, 19, I, I could imagine uh, that we'll see <laughs> this bill. This is a, uh, I'm going out on a limb and making a prediction that we'll see a reemergence of the efforts to ban 19, 1984, as as a reflection of this increased uh, uh, discourse in American politics around uh, socialism and communism and what have you, right? We'll see book bannings to you know uh, in many areas that we see um, 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 uh, kind of consistent with with, with Toni Morrison's book, uh, not just Beloved, The Bluest Eye. Her book, The Bluest Eye, yeah. uh, has been attacked in many cases. And but but these works are important reflections of the American experience. All right. And one last point, Bill, one last point it is connected to, uh, and maybe we can talk about this at some other point, but it's connected to the culture wars around this no notion of critical race theory, All right? All right. this notion that critical race theory is being taught uh, throughout American public schools, and we know that it's not. So if it's not being taught, what does it reflect? It reflects the use of culture as an instrument of power. 
Uh, Greg Bluestein, Kurt reminds me that a, a powerful political movie to watch is Inherit the Wind, which is about the Scopes trial and takes up all of those themes uh, in which we we look at the culture wars playing out. Uh, but you, in, in Spotsylvania, Pennsylvania, Greg, the school board there initially voted to have every book in every school library called through to find out if there were obscenities, if there were references to gays and lesbians, and to have them removed from the school libraries. Two members of the board suggested they should be burned, uh, which conjures up, Greg, some very disturbing images. By the way, the school board up there decided to rescind uh, their initial vote. But Greg, go ahead and talk about it in terms of Jan Jones and Georgia. Yeah, I mean, what the professor Young said was, was, was exactly right. This is not new, but I think we'll see this with renewed intensity in 2022. Um, because you saw the Virginia example. How do Republicans energize the base while keeping Donald Trump at arm's length? Well, they, they, they tackled issues of race, of culture, of education that, were, that you're uniquely mobilizing to conservatives. And you're already seeing that long before the Virginia example, to be honest, in Georgia. Brian Kemp has gone to the U.S. border with, with, with Mexico three times in the past year. Um, he's been talking about critical race theory in Georgia and banning it, even though there's no evidence that, that graduate-level course is being taught in any K-12 system throughout the state. Um, the vaccine mandates and the, and the legal battle against those play into that. And we're going to see state lawmakers, not just Jan Jones, but other state lawmakers, take up that issue. And, and frankly, the Gwinnett issue we were just talking about plays into that as well, because Senator Clint Dixon keeps on bringing up um, – uh, unspecified uh, partisan acts by the local school board as a reason to make those, that school system nonpartisan. So you're going to see this around. The, uh, this will be a dominant th- theme throughout the state legislature this next session. And frankly, it is a it is a departure from from Governor Deal's eight year tenure, where yes, certainly there were some culture war issues like religious liberty for one, but of course he vetoed that. But for the most part. There was not a focus on those sort of base mobilizing efforts that we're going to see in a major way next year. Yes, and Governor Deal had the cooperation of Speaker David Ralston in batting down a lot of that, those hot button social policy uh, issue, cultural war uh, items. Um, you know, my uh, uh, the question becomes uh, the, the Senate is, I, I, I think it's still true. But you're covering it daily. I haven't covered it daily for a long time. We typically think of the this, this Georgia Senate as being the incubator of some of the most conservative ideas uh, that come out of each legislative session. Uh, this is Jan Jones over in the House. So I assume that when the session starts next year, uh, she'll have plenty of allies on the Senate side. And and to be fair, you know, freshman uh, Senator Jason Anavatarte introduced this bill last year. It got out of the Senate. It it mm. you know withered in the House. Um, I think in in judiciary. And so um, yeah, this isn't something that will be new to the Senate. I know that um, Senator Anavatarte plans to pick it back up. I know that he said there are some some more things that he is looking at doing. So, yeah, definitely these things um, often start in the Senate as it did last year. And um, and so we'll have support it, if if it makes it through, you know, if the bill is introduced and if the bill makes it through the House, you know, a version of that has already made it out of the Senate. 
All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back. My list is still long, so let's try to get to it after these messages. You know, Chuck Williams, it seems that in the past, what, six, seven, eight months or more, district attorneys in the state of Georgia have suddenly come into the spotlight, and not for good reasons. I mean, down in Glenn County, around the Ahmaud Arbery murder, you had two district attorneys whose reputations are in tatters as a result of their failure to uh, move forward on going after the men who killed him. Um, And you have a DA in Muskogee County that you've been tracking for a long time, and uh, he has now, what, entered guilty pleas on four felony counts. We're talking about uh, DA, Muskogee County DA, Mark Jones. Just tell us a little about what that story is all about. As of noon on Monday, former Muskogee County DA, Mark Jones, um, Uh, Jones was elected DA last November, no Republican opposition. He defeated an entrenched Republican or entrenched Democrat in the primary, no opposition on the Republican side. He's the most ill-equipped person I've ever seen elected for office anywhere. He came in, he didn't understand the duties of the district attorney, and he's one of three that's currently under indictment by the AG's office, uh, current or former. He's the first one to be convicted. Uh, he got sentenced to five years in prison, one to serve. His own defense attorney, Bill, used the most unbelievable defense I've ever heard, but it was all she had. She said he was elected on a populist campaign, free the green, a bunch of that. And he was a self-proclaimed people's DA. When he came into office, this was the defense she used to explain his wrongdoing, including asking a Columbus police officer to lie under oath on body cam video uh, to upgrade an involuntary manslaughter charge to murder. She said in front of the jury to the court in her closing argument, people's DA, yes, maybe even the people's dumbass, but it's not criminal. That was her offense that her client was that big of an idiot. It's the most, I mean, it was unbelievable. Well, uh, <laughs> he's out of office. And as I said, it does just add to this list of DAs in Georgia who have found themselves under the gun uh, in the past year. All right, thank you for sharing that. I know that's been a big part of your work down there in Columbus at WRBL in recent uh, months. Uh, Greg, uh, you know, let's talk a minute about Newt Gingrich uh, writing as he did that uh, David Perdue is the only one who can beat Stacey Abrams, or at least saying that uh, 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 Brian Kemp can't uh, beat uh, uh, Stacey Abrams. Um, It was feeling for a while, to me at least, like this notion that David Perdue might take on uh, Kemp was an interesting thought, something for us to talk about as journalists. But is it beginning to actually feel more real? Newt says David Perdue's the only guy who can beat her. Um, and uh, uh, his lawyer, uh, Randy Evans, follows suit and says it has to be David Perdue. Is this becoming more real, Greg? Yeah, look, I committed myself. I've heard these, these rumors for months now, but I didn't want to report it until they were real. Right. So so about a month ago when I reported it, that, that was the, the, the point where David Perdue was 
was talking to folks about this potential run. So I think it's very real that he's considering a run. Whether or not he gets the run, my gut still says no, that he challenges Brian Kemp. But, but you can tell from the Brian Kemp camp that he takes that, 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 yeah. that, that possibility seriously. Um, and I think that Newt Gingrich just adds to the din, right? Because now we have a very prominent former Republican leader in Georgia and in, in, in Congress um, saying that he thinks that, that David Perdue should run because, because he's more electable in a general election than Brian Kemp. Um, and I think you're going to start seeing that from David Perdue supporters, seeing that same sort of uh, line of attack that they don't want to have David Perdue run. They'd rather a unified party behind Brian Kemp, but that they worry that Brian Kemp will win, will lose against Stacey Abrams in 2022. And the counter to that, of course, is Brian Kemp can raise his hand and say, I'm the only person who's ever beat Stacey Abrams out of anyone because yeah. of that narrow 2018 <laughs> election. Um. So, uh, Kurt, here's one of the sentences or paragraphs from the, the Gingrich uh, piece about, about this. Um, he says that a second term for Brian Kemp will be uh, divisive, as divisive, he believes, as a Stacey Abrams tenure would be. Uh, Kemp's long war with former President Donald Trump has deeply divided the Republican Party and all conservatives. Instead of trying to reconcile with the former president and his million-plus supporters in Georgia, Kemp has followed a policy of ruthlessly purging Trump supporters and trying to move to the center at the expense of the majority of the Republican Party. Kurt, that's an odd argument to make, because what he's basically suggesting is that David Perdue should be the candidate because he's in lockstep with Donald Trump and therefore can keep not the state united, but the party uh, united. And that's exactly right, Bill. Now, before we even go a step, a step further, imagine this: uh, uh, Newt Gingrich using the term uh, "divisive." Right? <laughs> Let's think about that for a minute. <laughs> no, but you, you're right. You're right. When I when I, I I first got wind of this, my my reflection was, well, you know, what is he cons- what is he specifically focusing on? He's not talking about statewide politics, or, 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 or nor is he talking about national politics. He's talking about divisiveness divisiveness within the Republican ranks within the Republican Party. And uh, it is a reflection of the long shadow of Don, uh, Donald Trump, uh, he, he, even um, 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 uh, after he is removed from office, after he's voted out of office. And the extent to which Repu- the Republican Party is, some would argue, remains the, the Trump Party. Now, I think Gingrich's right uh, voice is important here, because although he is himself, his, uh, his candle is burning low in national politics, uh, uh, he is still considered to be a heavyweight in the Republican uh, Party, even though, again, his voice is uh, somewhat quieter these days. And uh, he's re- his voice is reflecting a major concern in the, in the Republican Party. Now, of course, we've been saying quite a bit about uh, Yunking in, 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 in Virginia and the extent to which he adopted a, t- a type of uh, strategy that uh, minimized a kind of uh, emphasis on Donald Trump. I think that's yet to be uh, play, yet to play out. I'm not sure if that's an ex- exactly what occurred there, um, although the narrative is, is, is saying that very, very loudly. Uh, but Georgia is different. Georgia is different, and certainly uh, um, 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 Kemp is carrying that baggage. Uh, and I think Kemp um, is just seeing that in a certain kind of way, yes. My, so Greg points out that Kemp's taking it seriously. He's launched an ad campaign. I don't know how—Greg, uh, is this a TV buy, and do you know how big it is, or is this an online buy? It's TV online. It's six figures to start with. It's a minute-long ad. Okay. They're, they're carving it up to 30-second spots. 
Um, so, well, Greg, let me then ask you about it. What, what's the new? What the messaging is clearly a, a, around. I kept this state running steadily through the worst times we could imagine. Right, essentially. Yes, it, it seems to me a message both for conservatives and independents that hey, I kept the economy going. The economy is in good good state. I think to me, he's trying to basically ask the same question that he asked when I asked him about David Perdue, which is, why would anyone, why would he even bother challenging me? He didn't use David Perdue's name, but he asked that question, why? And and that would be the sort of question that that he'll pose to Republican voters: What are you so upset about? You know, beyond the Donald Trump defeat, what are you so upset about? Because he's not hitting, despite what Newt Gingrich said, he's not hitting back. There's no war between Brian Kemp and, and Donald Trump. That's one-sided. Brian Kemp has tried to, tried to, every time I've asked him, he has avoided swiping back at Donald Trump every single time. Maya? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, again, we need to state the obvious. J.C. Abrams has not entered the race yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it is definitely interesting um, thinking about some of the things that Newt Gingrich Gingrich said, um, you know, this long time war, Kemp, Governor Kemp's long time war with Donald Trump. I, I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what what con- is considered long, and I don't think Kemp has a war with Trump. I think it might be the other way around. Um, and so it's just it's interesting to think about about this um, these voices gathering behind David Perdue and. Um, We'll see. We'll see if that actually comes to fruition. Always interesting things happening in politics. Thank you, politicians of Georgia, for always giving us a lot of really meaty things to talk about, as we did today on Political Rewind. Uh, My uh, thanks to uh, Kurt Young, to Chuck Williams, to Maya Prabhu, to Greg Bustin for the conversation today. It was uh, really glad to have all of you with us. Hey, real quickly, tomorrow we're doing something different. Um, William Cope uh, 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 Moyers is the son of one of the most important journalists of his generation, Bill Moyers. William grew up running around the lawn of the White House, jumping on Air Force One, a child of enormous privilege. Uh, but he became uh, addicted, a substance abuser, uh, to drugs, to alcohol, and went on a long journey in which he could not get his life together. He's now straight. He's straightened himself out, and he is now working with the Betty Ford Clinic people up in Minnesota, but started a partnership with Emory University here. We're going to talk about his journey with uh, William Cope Moyers on the show tomorrow. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. He's a very candid, forthcoming guy. And I think you'll find him to be interesting uh, to listen to. So that's it. We're out of time for our show today. We did not get to the mayor's election. We'll take it up on Friday. Um, We did not get to, oh, a couple of other stories, but we'll do our best on Friday pick up on everything that we weren't able to get around to today, and I hope you all are okay with that. Till tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, and please stay healthy. See you all tomorrow.